What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. A great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Jim, I am very excited about tonight's show, even more so than usual, because we have got a band that even just thinking about them brings a smile to my face. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. This is Art Brute, a British band who is uh, just now coming out with their first record in the United States. But they blew us away at the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas. And then literally days later, we're in the studio with us uh, playing live for us. We've also got reviews of the new albums by Granddaddy, the uh, Southern California psychedelic pop band, and Tool, which just debuted at number one on the Billboard album chart last week with 550,000 copies of its fourth album sold in one week. But first, as always, we have some music news. Great White, once most famous for that song, now more famous, infamous, for uh, something that happened on the night of February 20th, 2003, in Providence, Rhode Island, a nightclub fire that claimed 100 fans uh, due to a pyrotechnic, ill-advised pyrotechnic display by that band in that small club. The uh, man deemed responsible for that fire, the band's road manager, Daniel Bichelle, 29 years old, uh, was facing... 10 years in prison uh, for that fire, received a four-year prison sentence from a judge in Superior Court in Rhode Island. The reaction in the packed courtroom was not uh, one of approval. Many of the people were relatives of the victims. They had hoped to see the maximum sentence imposed upon Bichelle. Instead, the judge, a Francis uh, Derrigan, uh, told Bichelle that the greatest sentence that can be imposed upon you has been imposed upon you by yourself. And uh, Bichelle was sobbing when the verdict was uh, read. He has said this fire was a, a product of uh, his own stupidity as much as it was any kind of maliciousness. And uh, his sentence now, four years in prison as a result of that fire. So Bichelle, the road manager, is sentenced this week. But still coming up, Greg, is the manslaughter trial of the two owners of that venue. Uh, we'll have to see where that winds up. God didn't make little green apples and it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. And there's no such thing as Dr. Seuss or Disneyland and Mother Goose is no nursery rhyme. God didn't make little green apples and it don't rain in Indianapolis in the summertime. Roger Miller's famously silly song about apples brings us into this story about the two dueling apples. Apple 
core. The Beatles record company has lost its trademark infringement court fight with Apple, the computer company. I don't know, Greg, this is one of the silliest court cases I've heard of in a long time. Two giants, two mega corporations <laughs> fighting for what seems to me to be no good reason whatsoever. Apple, the record company, the Beatles record company, always owned the trademark on that name, which, you know, they didn't invent. Let's face it. It predates Adam and Eve, right? As a music company. Apple, the computer company, uh, there was no problem there between the two Apples when Steve Jobs' company was only selling computers. But of course, recently they've gotten into the music download business via iPods and iTunes. The Beatles' Apple had great resentment for this. Part of the resentment, they've been uh, refusing to allow the Beatles catalog to be available for digital download, which is probably, you know, the holy grail still of digital downloading. Arguably, uh, they would like us to think so. I don't know. I don't know how many of the iPod generation really is eager to download the Beatles, and their parents already have been sold this stuff 15 times, you know, three vinyl copies of each album and six CD copies and then box sets. And the court case was finally decided, and the Beatles lost. You know, talk about two giants battling for absolutely nothing, Greg. Am I I missing something? No, you're not missing anything, but uh, I think there's two interesting caveats here. I mean, Judge Edward Mann, uh, who ruled in this case, basically ruled in favor of Apple Computer Company, uh, admitted early on in the case that he does own an iPod. Uh, So he he might be slightly biased, and he probably wants some Beatles tunes on that iPod. iPod. So he's probably saying, okay, let's let's make this happen. Um, Secondly... Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's only a matter of time before Apple Corporation is not just a music store, but in fact a record company, a music yeah. company. Yeah. Uh, so maybe this lawsuit will have more relevance in a few years because I think it's inevitable that rather than paying out these licensing fees to uh, record companies and bands in order to have the music in the iTunes stores, that they'll eventually want to start signing their own bands and and having all that cash flow go to them. Sure, especially because the major label system as we know it, which only a couple years ago was 12 or 15 labels, now down to four, is crumbling. It's a brontosaur running full speed for the tar pits, as we've said many times. It's about to be extinct. And maybe Apple and, I don't know, Microsoft will be the new content providers, the new labels. But still, Greg, is anybody ever going to confuse the Beatles' Apple records with any other company named Apple? I mean, you know, take all the money they wasted on lawyers and feed Bangladesh or something, you know? <laughs> oh, help me, please, doctor, I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. It's sleeping, it's fading. can't you please tear it out and preserve it right there in that jar? Uh, We here at Sound Opinions are happy to report that the doctors have indeed helped Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, who is uh, recovering, uh, if we are to believe their publicist, recovering just fine from the mysterious head injury he suffered last month on the island uh, nation of Fiji. And uh, contrary to reports in the New Zealand press, I guess those New Zealanders just never get their facts straight, uh, he has not suffered brain damage, at least not (laughs) from this mysterious fall. The Rolling Stones publicists finally responded. They took even longer than Dick Cheney's people. 
to say what happened when oh, the vice president God. shot somebody. Yeah. Finally responded, uh, no, it has not been uh, major brain surgery, although Keith Richards did have a hole drilled in his head, which is, isn't funny, but, but, but it's not a major well, operation. Yeah. He, he had a mild concussion. He was operated on to have some pressure removed from his head. They say that, that he's doing just fine. Again, quote, there's no brain damage. He continues to improve as expected. At least no brain damage from this. The 60-some-odd years of substance abuse and hard living, that remains to be seen. He's going to rejoin the tour shortly. Uh, they're going to be touring Japan, China, Australia, New Zealand, making you know a quadrillion dollars a night. Why Richards fell, we still don't know. He was either A, climbing a palm tree which I love. I just love that story. Or B, he fell off a watercraft. <laughs> I'm more intrigued by the idea of drilling a hole in Keith Richards' head. And what do they find when they drill <laughs> that hole? You know, like uh, the there was an ounce of hashish. There was five <laughs> flasks of uh, un- undrunk gin in there. There was a Marianne, Mars bar. Happy Mars bar. Mars yeah. bar, yeah. <laughs> oh, the contents are now for sale on eBay. <laughs> You're listening to Cattle and Cane from a uh, Australian band, The Go-Betweens. Bono uh, said that's one of his favorite songs ever. Uh, it is indeed one of uh, Bono's favorite songs, and uh, in in certain polls, it, it it consistently comes up in the top ten as one of the the best Australian pop songs of the last thirty, forty years, and uh, it very much is. It, it was written by a man named Grant McLennan co-founder of the uh, Go-Betweens, one of the very best bands out of Australia in the late 70s uh, through the 80s, and uh, reformed in recent years to uh, have another fine run of shows across the world. McLennan was found dead in his home in Brisbane a few days ago at the age of 48, passed away in his sleep, uh, cause unknown at this point. Shocking, shocking news. Robert Forster, his friend and fellow songwriter in the Go-Betweens, said instantaneously that the band was no more. McLennan and uh, the Go-Betweens leave behind a, a tremendous legacy, even though they did not have the commercial success of many of the bands that they influenced or ad- were admired by, including Bono, including the Smiths and Morrissey. They had a tremendous body of work. Greg, people probably only know them, if they know them at all, from uh, the early alternative era hit, uh, staple on MTV for a while, Bachelor Kisses. Great video with the two female members and, and Foster and McLennan. Mm-hmm. staple on like MTV's 120 Minutes. Right. Uh, but a real partnership, right? I mean, it was Foster, Robert Foster, and Grant McLennan were kind of a power pop 80s version of Lennon and McCartney. Absolutely. With each completing the other's thoughts. Mm-hmm. And if there was a, a dichotomy there, Forster was sort of considered the darker, edgier half of the duo. But the one thing that was at the core of the go-betweens music that I really, really loved, and especially true of McLennan, 
was the humanity of it. The song Catalan Cain, he's just talking, looking back on his childhood, the reminiscences of his childhood, and he's talking about getting old in that song. Here's a guy who was in, in 1983, he was what, you know, in his, still in his 20s, and mm-hmm. he's thinking about the aging process and thinking about growing old as he, as he re- looks, reflects back on his childhood. Wrote many, many fine songs in that vein. Uh, gentle, uh, moving pop songs. Uh, one of the best uh, we're going to play here next, Bye Bye Pride from the 1987 Go-Betweens record, Tallulah which uh, features a, a, a rare thing in a rock song, an oboe solo by uh, one Amanda Brown, hmm. a member of the Go-Betweens at that time. Uh, rocks and music, maybe the only other oboe solo, Jim. I mean, can we think of any others uh, that uh, well, can qualify? <laughs> somewhere when we run out of topics, around about our 10th year doing it, I think we'll do the oboe rock show. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Listen for the oboe solo then in Bye Bye Pride from the Go-Betweens. A white moon appears like a hole in the sky The mangroves go Teresa de la Palma, a teenage Rasputin, takes the sting from a gin. When a woman learns to walk, she's not dependent anymore. A line from her letter, May 24. And out on the bay, the current is strong, a boat can go lost. But I didn't know someone who is so lonesome. Tied up and held for ransom To take your shoes and go outside Stride over stride Walk to that tide Cause the door is open Great song from Grant McLennan of the Go-Betweens, Dead at the Age of 48. That was one of his best efforts, Bye Bye Pride. Up next, we're going to talk to the members of Art Brute, a British pop-punk band we discovered at South by Southwest earlier this year. Just love them to pieces. They came into the studio not long after the South by Southwest conference uh, down at wall-to-wall recording here in Chicago. Eddie Argos is the inimitable lead vocalist. (laughs) Ian Katzkilkin, Jasper Future are the guitarists. Freddie Feedback, what a great name. Uh, she's a woman. And uh, Mikey B on drums. They are truly one of a kind on Sound Opinions. We are here at beautiful wall-to-wall recordings on the near north side of Chicago with Art Brute, all oh. the way from England, uh, visiting our Mary, Mary Currently town. one of our favorite bands in the world. We, we were just at uh, South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, 1,400 bands. I forgot 1,399 other bands, but <laughs> yeah. this band right here, I went to see them twice. That's how good they were. First time, great. Had a smile on my face. Couldn't even take notes. Just smiling the whole time. Well, and I told you guys, I, I went to see that second show. I was hoping you'd suck so that I could argue with him about it. And I, I, I walked out of that venue going, oh, brood, top of the pulps. And then I went home and I said, well, you know, they can't be any good on record. I mean, all right, that was a fun show, but I had had a couple of beers. And the record's great. So, uh, and so we're getting you right on the cusp of it finally coming out in America, right? Yeah, May the 23rd. I found out today. May the 23rd. And, and, the, and did you get signed at South by Southwest, or the buzz had kind of been building, I right? think, I don't know, yeah. 
Bus has been building, I'm sure. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met them for the first time at South by Southwest. Like, hey, we're your record label. Oh, amazing. I didn't know we had one. <laughs> really? <laughs> nice so to meet they didn't like take you out for one of these, you know, hundred fifty dollar plate dinners or they anything? They took us out for drinks at South by Southwest. Drinks? So, yeah, Man, nice. you sell yourself too easily. <laughs> I prefer drink to food. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. As long as you got what you wanted. <laughs> That's great. The guys are all set up. Before we have any more conversation, I think we ought to have you guys play a song for us. Uh, record was out in the UK last year and has caused quite a stir over here. Finally going to be officially released. What do you guys want to play for us first? Um, I think we're going to play My Little Brother. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good plan, our brute. Yeah, they're all nodding. It's good. Let's go. Is in the house. Well, we got a lot, a lot of hard work today. We got a rock at the government center. You're hearing a bit of Government Center from Jonathan Richmond. He was a big influence on Art Brute's lead singer, Eddie Argos. We're going to talk more with the Argos and the rest of the band in just a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. Later on in the show, we're going to have reviews of the new albums from Tool and Granddaddy. Rock, 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 rock,
Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. We're here at Wall to Wall Studios with Art Brute, Eddie, Ian, Jasper, Freddie, and Mikey. Thanks, guys, for coming in. Eddie, uh, tell us about how the band got started. It was at a party, right? Um, yeah. I'd had another band before, and they'd all gone to university, so I moved to London to start another band. But everyone was saying no to me because I can't play an instrument or sing. So I was going around this party asking everyone to be in a band with me. And um, they all said no. And I was getting drunk as I went around too. So by the time I got to Chris, our old guitarist, I, um, I was telling loads of lies and saying that I'd had albums out before and I, I, could, I could sing like Frank Sinatra and all, you know, all this business. And uh, So yeah, he believed me and said um, that we'd have a band together. And then he taught Freddie, a bass player, how to play the bass. And I thought to even the scale up a little bit, I'd better get one of my friends in. So mm-hmm. I got my heavy metal guitarist friend, Ian Catskill. <laughs> and that is an impressive belt, heavy metal guitarist. With <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Both Art Brute guitarists are, have got like all sorts of studs on their belts. Ian and, and Jasper are comparing belts right now. <laughs> <laughs> very, very rock. Too much rock. But Eddie, one of the things that's great about so much of your music is that it's about wanting to make music. And yeah. despite the fact that I have no talent, I'm not going to let that stop me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to learn so many different instruments, and I just can't. And then one day I heard you know, like Lou Reed and Damon Albarn singing and thought, they can't sing. I can, I can learn that instrument. It's just having a voice. Do you mean so? Right. I did that. That's and I, a personality. Uh, oh, thank you very much. Well, you were messing around though in, in bands where it was kind of more about personality and and having uh-huh. sort of a a stage presence as opposed to a, any actual musical ability that yeah, in, got in my, you through. In my first band with Jasper, I used to play the Hoover, a vacuum cleaner, vacuum cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> so would you, would you mic the Hoover vacuum cleaner? Well, it's really hard to find where the sound comes from. So I was just kind uh-huh. of. I'd end up just kind of like moving the microphone around until I found the right sound. <laughs> we played once and someone was just screaming at me, that's not music, with the hands over their ears. Wow, so that's we, great. But I was like, ah, no, it is, it's just clever, clever jazz. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Jim was mentioning the directness of the lyrics, you know, celebrating being a band, celebrating, you know, my little brother. People take it as kind of irony, shtick, tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yeah. Like, formed a band, people always think I'm joking in that, and I'm... Um, I was just very excited and trying to convince them to let me stay. You know, I was like, you can make Israel and Palestine get along. We can get on top of the pops. We can go, oh, come on, like a speech almost, you know, so they didn't kick me out. So uh, <laughs> that, was, that was that. And things like my little brother's just, just concerned, really. He lived at the foot of my bed before he moved to London. I was just worried about him, so it came out in that song. So How's that's it, um, autobiographical. Yeah, oh, they're, all, they're all true, the songs. <laughs> How's your little brother doing now? You seem very concerned about him in that song. He's okay, you know, he's got his hair cut, got a job in the sea. All works out fine. <laughs> that's not true. Terrific. Well, how about... No, a, there, he hasn't hit you up to go roadie with him, uh, yeah. with you guys yet, has he? No, no. He's got his own band now called Loopy Velez. They're quite good. Wow. He, is is song, there jealousy? Oh, he's got a song that goes, he formed a band, he formed a band, but we formed a band just a little bit better. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Which I quite like. We keep referencing this song, Formed a Band. Uh, is it possible that, that we could hear it? Do you want to hear it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> <laughs> Ready up, Brute.
this is my singing voice. We're never gonna be rock and roll. What we're doing is talking. To the kids! At Wall to Wall Recording Studio, Dan Dietrich is manning the uh, machines up there. Thank you so much, Dan. And it's a treat to have you guys here. You know, so much love for rock and roll and singing about loving playing rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But you know, really, I mean, you guys are out of date. I mean, doesn't everybody want to like become an MC today? Isn't the idea of like you <laughs> or, know or you know, Coldplay when you guys formed? Coldplay was the biggest band. Yeah, you know, right? oh, you know? <laughs> sagging. <laughs> I mean, you're dinosaurs. You know, why rock and roll, fellas? Why not? Yeah, we're punk rock (laughs) You mentioned Jonathan Richmond though You quoted the Modern Lovers Roadrunner at the end of that that song Which was great And Jonathan Richmond's kind of like The the influence nobody talks about In in your music, right? Well, he's my hero I'm obsessed with him So like, pretty much And they can all take him or leave him, I think (laughs) But like, I love him What was it about Richmond's music that you liked? What what appealed to you? It's the way he writes about anything Like, the variation in his songs is huge Like things about um, A bubblegum rapper in the breeze Or buying new jeans Or about Egyptian, him and his daughter, and uh, or him and his wife. I mean, it's, it's just so honest. I like that a lot. But the thing is, Eddie, uh, is we're talking to Eddie Argos of Art Brute. So there's the Modern Lovers, Richmond, mm-hmm. you know, where they were still a rock and roll band, very mm-hmm. much influenced by the Velvet Underground, yeah. who you diss in another song, <laughs> I don't, I don't which ironically them. sounds like the Velvet Underground. <laughs> um, but then, you know, uh, Richmond famously decided that he no longer wanted to make music that would hurt the ears it's of a, little babies. Yeah. And so he went completely acoustic. Yeah. But you stayed. Yeah, well, I like his acoustic. I almost prefer his acoustic songs. Really? You forget that I'm not in charge of the music. See, <laughs> I, can't, ah. I can't play anything. We should be acoustic and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't. Somehow, I don't. I don't. Not with those belts. No, no, no. I, 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 I much prefer like loud rock music. But um, I just love his, his lyrics and I like mm-hmm. the tunefulness of it all and the playfulness of it. It's cool. And you know, we're talking about earlier the the, the fact that you were sort of different from what else was going on in England at the time mm-hmm. and when you guys started. Was that part of the idea? Like, we don't want to be like all these other bands that are out here. I think we're just doing what we like. I think that was the point. We didn't intend on being successful or anything. We were just making friends, you know. There's no real plan with that group. We're two 
not very well organized. <laughs> There's no plan. <laughs> yeah, but here it is. You guys pulled up to wall-to-wall downtown Chicago in a 40-foot tour bus. <laughs> you know, and here you are in America. And yeah. you know, all these rock critics and the media are coming out to see you at South by Southwest when we first saw you. Uh-huh. And, you know, you invented this dream. You made songs about it. You got lucky enough to put them out on a record. And now you're kind of living it. It's kind of yeah, weird, weird, huh? I don't want to scrutinize it too much in case you know, I wake, I'll wake <laughs> up or something. <laughs> It'd be terrible, but... Well, you yeah. just told us, Eddie, when you walked in here, that you found out that you had got signed to an American record deal by reading about it in Pitchfork. <laughs> 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 it's, yeah, it's true. I don't, I don't really pay much attention. <laughs> That's the problem. No, so, so. It's, it's almost kind of refreshing to see that you guys are obviously doing this for the music and the other stuff that, as opposed to the business side of it. The business side doesn't seem to interest you too much. I don't think we're very business-minded. <laughs> look, at us, look at those belts. Well, play something else for us, Art Brute, and t- but tell us, Eddie, you know, how the song came together. How did you guys write it and, and what inspired you? Oh, what do you want? Do you want Emily Kane? Should you play Emily Kane next? Play Emily Kane next, I think. Sorry. <laughs> That's how well organized we are. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Emily Kane, um, she was like, my first ever girlfriend. And we, sort of, we, we split up in a funny way and stuff. Real name? Real name, yeah, of course. But, but yeah, yeah, definitely the real name. And I'm like, I've, for a long time, I still thought I was in love with her. When I wrote the words to this song, I still thought I was in love with her. And have you heard from Emily yeah, since? Yeah, I, I met her. And, you know, yeah. I, 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 can, I can explain it to you better in song form if you like. <laughs> That's great. I just want to know what she said when she heard the song. Yeah. She didn't hear it to begin with, and she sent me a text saying, um, I hear you've written the song, whatever. And I sent a text back saying, Yeah. She's like, Is it mean? That's not really mean. <laughs> it's, it's quite nice. You know. She likes it. It's good. All right. So, and, and, you know, are you still in touch now still? Yeah, we're, or friends, yeah, we're friends. We're friends. Uh, yeah. Special friends? Or no, 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 no. Not special friends. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell them in the song. We can do it in the song, I think. All right. Uh, ready? song where normally I say I've not seen Emily Kane in 10 years but that would be a lie because she as I just said she got in touch and she phoned me and it was so weird hearing that voice from my childhood speaking about things like credit card debt and and, and university but in that conversation that's the point that I realized that the band were right all along I wasn't really in love with Emily Kane I was just in love with being in love when I was 15 which is a completely different thing which I understand now
sort of. <laughs> Eddie, oh, Eddie Argos oh, of uh, Art Brute just played Emily Kane, and he promised that he would explain to us what he was talking about. He, we didn't, he didn't need to explain the song. No, indeed. Because the did. explanation was already built in. These sort of monologues are sort of part of the songs, part of the set. Really great part of it. It's, it's really hilarious, really entertaining. Kind of reminds me of, like, you know, my parents used to own a bunch of old Ink Spots records, and the guy would, you know, drop down, you know... <laughs> I, I left you many years ago, and, and you, you hear it on old country songs, and uh-huh. Jerry Butler would be doing it on soul songs in the 60s. Uh-huh. Where, where did you sort of pick up that sort of style, you know, Poof. these sort of interior stream of consciousness kind of things <laughs> that come out, you know? Well, they're just true stories, so I can update them. I get bored really easily, so I just kind of like changing all the time. It's much easier changing it if you're just speaking and not making it rhyme. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> and I, Jonathan Richmond does that a lot too, so I kind of... All know. right. Now, you've got the, the record coming out again in the United States, finally getting a proper release here. But this is kind of an older record for you guys now. I yeah, mean, I would imagine you've got a boatload of new songs and stuff. Yeah, loads of new songs, yeah. We've got about four or five. We're playing some of them live, but we think it's a bit... You want to... If, you know, people haven't had the old songs yet, so we're still kind of tampering with the set, so it's still got some old songs in it. Do you feel like playing the songs as many times as you do? Do you, do you feel like, geez, we, we'd love to move on, but that just the way the record industry works is that yeah. you know, you've got to have this release in the U.S. a year after it came out in the U.K.? Yeah. It's okay, though, because I mean, we, we change the music a lot and, and the words a lot and stuff. We, we change loads of things live, so it's not like... They're completely different songs than they were, say, three months ago live, so it's, right. it's okay. They change all the time, so it's, right. it's kind of cool. And what about you guys? Does he ever crack you up with some of these monologues? And Don't really listen. <laughs> we tend not to. We tend not to encourage him. You know, it's probably best not to zone out and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like feedback. All right, so you just groove on and whatever he's doing. Just a l- I imagine just a little bit of encouragement. He just keeps going and going and going. Yeah, give him an inch, you know. <laughs> All uh, right, it's been a pleasure, Art Brute. Thanks for coming here. Well, thanks for having us. It's been loads of fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot. You're only halfway through your working day. I'm sorry, honey. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio, Top of the Pops. Coming up, Granddaddy and Tool, new albums from those two groups, and my Desert Island jukebox. Every day is just like starting over. We try so hard, but we keep on falling over. Every day is just like starting over. We try so hard, but we keep on falling over. Every day. Just like starting over We try so hard But we keep on falling over You're worried And I have my doubts But I'm drunk on a text So I send posts soothing out I just had a nasty flashback We both used our cards for cash back my pockets are full of change and every day it's just like starting over we try so hard but we keep on falling over every day it's just like starting over
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. That is a song called Jeez Louise from the California band Granddaddy, Modesto, California, which markets itself, the official city slogan, Greg, the city of water, wealth, contentment, and health. (laughs) That's a great song, Greg, and it kind of sets up the album just like the family cat, family cat. Spelled F-A-M-B-L-Y. The album opens with the very haunting sounds of a child asking again and again over this weird ambient backing music, what happened to the family cat? What happened to the family cat? Jeez Louise captures that weird kind of sense of expectation and liberation and also fear and insecurity that comes when a teenager, presumably the band leader and singer, primary songwriter Jason Little, has his first sexual tryst in a Modesto motel. And I guess uh, the girl's mother burst in on him. <laughs> yes, this is an album about endings, but also beginnings. Little is ready to move on with the rest of his life. Granddaddy has thrown in the t- after 14 years of slogging through the indie rock underground just on the cusp of success. They came closest with an album that you absolutely adored, 2000's The Software Slump, Mm -hmm. which was pretty much hailed by critics in U.S. and England as one of the best records of 2000 and the absolute best at capturing, remember this, nostalgia for the new millennium, that weird sense of end of the millennium, end of the world, you know, everything was going to explode and the computers were all going to self-destruct, none of which happened, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, these are a bunch of uh, skate punks who turned into kind of like nature boys who, you know, are... Very stoned uh, nature boys. Very, (laughs) very, yeah, very stoned nature boys who hated the kind of mechanical world and the strip mall world encroaching on their beloved redwoods and presumably, you know, mushrooms and marijuana fields and disliked all of that and railed against it in their music. Well, railed is a hard word. They certainly hated it, but always these kind of dreamy, lilting, beautiful pop songs. This is their fourth album. They broke up in the process of making it. There were some substance abuse problems and the end of a romantic relationship that Little had. Also, communications problems. We had them on an earlier incarnation of Sound Opinions. <laughs> These guys didn't talk to us. They didn't talk to each other. You know, you can picture what life was like in that van as they crisscrossed this country and Europe trying to build an audience. They were great, but they never quite broke through to the mainstream success they deserved. And I think this album captures all of that. The regret and the celebration of how close they came and the fact that they still love the music. Let's play a song and then we'll we'll give our thoughts on this. It's always a good sign, as I say, when uh, there's four four or five songs in competition, but we decided to play this one, Elevate Myself, by Granddaddy on Sound Opinions. I don't want to work all night and day on writing songs that make the young girls cry. Or playing little solos on a keyboard so the kids will ask me how and why. I just want to I just wanna, I just wanna, I just wanna elevate 
elevate myself from Granddaddy's fourth album, Just Like the Family Cat. That song perfectly illustrates to me what they're about. You've got this kind of synthetic groove going on there. There's the modern man, you know, making the synthetic groove. And then that beautiful, spacious interlude there, which to me sort of evokes, you know, nature. They're mm-hmm. nature boys. You know, here they are in this very provincial town, and you could just imagine people wanting to go crazy in a town like that, and yet yeah. they're surrounded by these amazing feats of nature, the beautiful desert, the mountains, the clash of that modernity and also of old values that seem to be fading. That's been like a key theme for Jason Little throughout the Granddaddy lexicon, and I think he encapsulates it perfectly on this record. This is a much better record than I initially gave it credit for. I was, as you said, a big fan of the software slump, which I thought sort of captured that mood of, as you said, millennial decay perfectly, like the whole idea that it could end any minute, and things are breaking down. And again, things are breaking down in this record as well, and yet there's an amazing beauty sort of at the center of this sort of hollowed-out universe. You know, the end of his impending marriage, the end of a miserable tour, the end of the band, and yet in the middle of this, there's just this incredible moment of clarity and beauty that he's finding. Like, everything's done, so I can start over. So he's given it all up. He's broken up with these guys who he grew up with, formed the band with, and he's moved to the mountains of Montana. Yeah. Where he says he's uh, playing guitar and singing. So I don't think we've heard the last of Jason Little, and I'm sure that whatever he does is going to be great. I think this is a great note to go out on, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a buy-it record, Greg. Yeah, I agree. On the patented sound opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it, trash it, this is definitely a buy-it record. That is Tool from their new album, 10,000 Days, a song called Wings for Marie, part one. Part one ought to tell you a lot about this band, (laughs) because there is obviously a part two attached to this. Uh, Between the two, this ode to Maynard James Keenan's mother encompasses 17 minutes of this record. A record that, by the way, has debuted at number one on the Billboard charts, has sold over 560,000 copies in its first week comes five years after the previous Tool record, Lateralus, that sold 2.2 million copies. Here is a band, incredibly commercially successful, art metal band, that gets very little uh, radio airplay, doesn't get a lot of MTV play because their videos are just too damn weird. I mean, macabre, art house type of horror movie videos. They perform on stage in almost total blackness. They're sort of just silhouettes against a video screen on stage. Very media shy, don't do many interviews, don't have many photographs, and yet one of the most successful metal bands of the last decade and a half. They formed in L.A. in the early 90s. They release records about once every four or five years, and have forged this incredible cult following in the millions. I think one of the keys to their success, Jim, is that they evoke that 70s progressive rock vibe and combine it with the new metal. So here's new, a band. That's, that's NU with the umlaut yes, over the U. And yes. all the worst that that implies. I think they've done it way better than a lot of those cliched new metal bands. And one of the reasons is that they do have this fetish for art rock. The packaging on this album alone. Yeah, if we word, were just rating the packaging on this record. It comes with a set of stereoscopic glasses built into the cover so that you can see the 3D photographs. The 3D artwork. Like 30 pages of a CD booklet these, jump out at you. These guys were made for those triple album gatefold sleeves of the 70s. 
this is the kind of band that would do the sidelong suites, that would take the, the one side of the LP completely. This is the kind of record that kids are going to want to take into their room and not emerge for weeks until they parsed every possible Byzantine secret that this record has to yield. So, yes. Well, and band- there are plenty because it's kind of inscrutable. I mean, the song titles and the, the lyrics reference everybody from the genie in Pee Wee's Playhouse yeah. to Albert Hoffman, the Swiss chemist who accidentally discovered LSD, to Keenan's mother. 10,000 days is the amount of time she lingered between suffering a stroke and dying. Yeah, these guys, uh, they love the heaviness not only in the sound, but they fathom themselves pseudo-intellectuals. They're beyond metal cliches, not only in terms of the content, but in the way that Keenan sings about them. He's not your classic metal wailer. This guy actually can sing. But we have a review of this record, but not before we play the uh, first cut on the record. It's called Vicarious. And a slight caveat here, this is perhaps the hardest rocking song. So in that respect, perhaps a little unrepresentative, but here it is nonetheless. Vicarious from Tool on Sound Opinions. Yes, that's Tool, the opening track of their five years in the making, fourth album, 10,000 Days, Vicarious. Greg, I don't know what you're talking about as far as uh, Keenan being able to sing. Uh, to me, he sounds very much, you know, there's a, a joke, uh, it's been a term that DJs and critics have used for years about new metal vocalists calling it cookie monster vocals. You know, well, you know uh, like I think there's a lot of variation in his vocal style. I'm not complaining about that. Well, you know, you mentioned the progressive rock ties, and certainly the virtuosity in the musicianship is there, the complicated arrangements are there, the atmospheric sound effects and very dark side of the moon conversational snippets are there the 17 eighths time passages and tabla solos are there what's not there is the fact that you know the best records by Genesis and yes groups like that progressive rock groups they had hooks they had this crazy musical diversity a song may last 12 minutes it may go through 20 changes but there were always hooks what Tool doesn't have 
are hooks. The shorter of these songs clock in at six and a half, seven minutes. The longest one, as you said, is this two-part suite at 17 minutes. We're talking tales from topographic oceans territory there. No amount of overdubbed tabla and Cookie Monster vocals and arty obscurantism can camouflage a lack of songwriting. This is a monolithic, repetitive, monochromatic album. And 10,000 Days is how long it seems to take to get to the end of it. Yeah. You know, it just, there, there are moments that jump out that are very interesting, but boy, is this much ado about not that much at all. Yeah, this is uh, the Rubik's Cube metal album, and they, they want you to puzzle <laughs> over it, and they want you to spend days and days. I'm sorry, I agree. Lateralist, I enjoyed the heck out of that record. I thought it was a very, very good progressive metal record, and oh, one no, of the see, reasons I, I, I did... I think this record is marginally better than Lateralist, which was too, like, kind of hair metal power battle. Oh my god, but the thing about that is that it did have the power. I mean, the drumming on that record was monumentally great, I thought. Yeah. And I thought Adam Jones showed up in a big way. He's got those megaton riffs that he holds back, holds back, and then he lays them on you, and it, you feel like you're, you know, I feel like a 17-year-old kid with my head being imploded in my, He's the you guitarist. Know, in my room. Yeah. yeah. You know these guys, you know, I'll tell you where the audience of these guys are. If you check out the last two or three years' covers of Guitar World and Modern Drummer Magazine, Jones and Danny Carey, the drummer, have yeah. been like on one out of every five covers, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's kids in their bedroom wanting to play play like these guys and, and those kids is, exactly jim and i think those kids are going to be disappointed by this because there's not enough of that i think carrie is way mixed down in in this record but there's which tabla. Is a huge mistake there's tabla i, I don't think the tabla substitute for the, <laughs> the, the the drumming he was doing on the previous record adam jones too more about the mood setting rather than yeah. the riffs give me the riffs yeah. i want the riffs and they're not here so, Greg, it sounds like you're a trash it. I would say burn it because there are a couple of interesting moments, and and you need the cover art, which is really cool. Of course, if you burn the record, you don't get the cover art. Hey, that's really the way I feel about it. Buy the cover art, throw out the disc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. All right, it's that time of the show for the Desert Island Jukebox Pick. This week, it is Jim DeRogatis' turn to take a record with him to a desert island that he can't live without. Thank you, Mr. Cott. We heard a little bit of Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers earlier in the show because we talk so much with Eddie Argos and the guys in Art Brute about the Modern Lovers as an influence. Some of our younger listeners may only know of the Modern Lovers or Jonathan Richmond as that geeky guy who's the troubadour in Something About Mary. Other listeners, you know, their parents may know of the Modern Lovers as this weird folk band, which they were. But when they started out... Formed in Massachusetts in the early 1970s, they were something else entirely. Richmond was a huge fan of Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, and uh, in one point moved from Boston to New York, hoping to convince Lou Reed to let him sleep on his couch. You know, he wanted to do what the Velvet Underground had done, and he did with the first version of The Modern Lovers. Talk about an incredible band. David Robinson, the drummer, would go on to propel the cars. Jerry Harrison would become the keyboard player of the Talking Heads. Ernie Brooks, the bassist, probably the least known, but was a journeyman musician in countless noteworthy groups in Boston for three decades. We last saw him on stage with Reese Chatham at South by Southwest a couple of weeks ago. 
Richmond leading the band on vocals and guitar. They recorded their first album in 1972 with John Cale of the Velvet Underground producing. Again, Richmond loved that influence. It was raw, it was ragged, it was garage rock, and clearly pointing to this new sound that only a couple of years later would be called punk. Uh, it was never released until 1976. And by that time, the band had long broken up in its original incarnation. Richmond had this awakening where he decided that he only wanted to play music that would not disturb the ears of babies in the audience, that they could sleep through his concert. <laughs> everything went acoustic, everything went cutesy, everything got stripped down. The other modern lovers all moved on to these other bands because they wanted to rock. And rock they did. When this album finally came out, it was a huge influence on groups like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. The Sex Pistols would cover Roadrunner, which is probably the modern lover's best-known song. I'm not going to play that. That's too obvious. Earlier, we heard Government Center. It's songs in that mold that Argos is taking his cue from. Songs about the everyman dweeb, kind of like, nobody loves me, I can't get a girlfriend, I'm sitting here at the government center watching beautiful women stroll by. I think She Cracked is one of those songs that captures that. That's the tune I'm going to play from the Modern Lover's self-titled debut um, because it's interesting. There's this undercurrent of anger. You know, Eddie knows he's playing the nerd and there's a large part of the nerd in him in Art Brute, but he's really, he was the coolest guy in the room. I mean, I think he's one of the coolest guys we've Absolutely. ever had on Sound Opinions. In She Cracked, Richmond is railing at this girl. You know, she was sensitive. She understood me. She understood the European things from 1943. She's this art-loving aesthete who happens to be killing herself with drugs and alcohol, while Richmond is the everyman who sits at home. You know, she eats junk food and gets stoned, and I sit at home alone and eat health food. There's that wonderful kind of self-effacing quality to his music, which, when combined with the rock that the first Modern Lovers gave it, I mean, listen to that organ. Listen to that trashy garage rock organ. Listen to those drums, the way the song breaks down in the middle, and it's that, that rhythmic break where you're just counting and waiting for it to come back in. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, She Cracked is on a short list of one of the all-time perfect rock songs. Here it is, Modern Lovers on Sound Opinions. Well, she was sensitive. She understood me. She understood the European things from 1943. But she does all these
She Cracked from Jonathan Richmond. That's Jim's Desert Island Jukebox pick for tonight. A great one. Next week, we've got another good show for you. We're very excited to bring you a uh, 40th anniversary tribute to one of the great albums of all time, The Beatles' Revolver. We haven't done one of these classic album dissections in some time, certainly not in our new incarnation on Chicago Public Radio. It's going to be a treat to dive in deep with that record. On the way out, we got some folks to thank. Dan Dietrich, head engineer over at Wall Recording Studio, did a great job mixing and recording Art Root. Top of the Pops, yes. and uh, everybody there was great to us when we were over there. As always, Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Spiegel's the producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. We get legal help from Dino Armiros, technical assistance from Joe Dassault. And as usual, thanks for listening. <laughs>